Hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. On today's episode, you're going to be hearing from Andy Steiger as he sits down with author Lee Emerson. Lee Emerson wrote a book called Deception, The Craft of Satan, The Falling of Man, The Wisdom of God. Emerson examines what the Bible has to say about the subject of deception, starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation. So continue listening as Andy and Lee discuss how God's wisdom manifesting Christ has confounded Satan on the cross and how he has now, through the Holy Spirit, equipped Christians to navigate the dangerous shoals and reefs that the evil one has set in place to try and shipwreck the faith of believers. Before we get into that episode, I just wanted to let you know of an event that is coming up very soon at Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Do you want to better understand the gospel and how to share your faith in today's culture? Join us on Wednesday, August 24th for a barbecue and coaching. Andy Steiger, President of Apologetics Canada, and Bill Hogg, National Director of Message Canada, have been engaged in evangelism across Canada for decades. Together, they will share what they have seen and learned to help you better engage your family, friends, and coworkers with the gospel. There will be practical teaching, group discussion, and a time to ask all your questions. So we hope you can join us. Doors open at 5.45 p.m. Dinner starts at 6 p.m. And for more information, feel free to head over to ApologeticsCanada.com and click on How to Talk About Jesus under Events for more. Now for the podcast. Hello, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I want to welcome you back to the AC Podcast. I am joined today with a very special guest, Lee Emerson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. It is great to have you with us. Uh, I don't know if you were able to hear that, but there is a British accent that, that you'll notice. Uh, where where are you from, Lee? Well, I was born in Lincoln, which is in the East Midlands in the uh, in England. Uh, but I live at the moment in Devon, which is in the southwest of, uh, of the country. Okay, and and we're we're going to get more into your story of of your your time growing up in the UK and how that has impacted you, particularly where you've gone to school and stuff like that. Um, before we do, just want to let listeners know that we're going to be discussing Lee's book, Deception, The Craft of Satan, The Folly of Man, The Wisdom of God. I I wrote an endorsement for this book, so I, I loved it when I first read it. I read it again in preparation for our time together and and just was reminded again how much I appreciate this book. One of the things that I that I really appreciate about this book is that not very many people write on this subject. And if they do write on this subject, sometimes, uh, you know, I'm sure you've come across these people, they're, they're weird. Or they've, they've gotten completely consumed with the subject and they've gotten weird. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I think anything to do with the devil, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, people pick up on that and uh, can take it into all sorts of different directions. Um, and I wasn't really overly concerned about the devil himself but more with the idea that deception, which I think is a, a biblical topic that runs from the beginning to the end of Scripture, and looking at that, understanding what the Bible has to say about the whole nature of deception, and clearly Satan's involved in that. But it, it's, I didn't want it to be uh, the focus to be on him. And a lot of people do get carried away with the idea of Satan and uh, the way he plays with us and, and such like. But like you're saying, a lot of books I have read myself, and or a lot of um, authors who get into this sort of thing, and uh, uh, I don't think I'd read anyone who dealt with it in the way that I wanted to deal with it. And, and bring out for us as a, as, a, as a Christian people what we need to understand about what the Bible teaches us about how we approach deception, how we understand it, how we deal with it. Um, yeah, so. So be encouraged. I don't think you're weird. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you've, you've done a great job with this book. And, you know, you've spent a number of years in ministry. And, and I would say that people who have 
spent time in ministry understand how important this concept of deception is. And and in fact, I'm going to quote myself here. Uh, <laughs> this is something I often tell students when I'm when I'm teaching is that you'll know you're doing ministry when Satan cares about you. Yeah, you, you you'll know you're doing ministry when Satan cares about you. In other words. When you start doing ministry, all of a sudden you become keenly aware that there is a spiritual dimension to what you're doing, that sometimes Christians can go along and never encounter that spiritual realm and and the conflict that's there. And that's probably often because they Satan doesn't care about you. Yeah, I, I think there's something in that, but I'd go even further and say for some people, Andy, I think, uh, and true for me, my understanding of deception and of the whole spiritual realm developed when I became a Christian, and I became keenly aware that there was a whole new world, a whole dimension to existence beyond the one we see out there. When I was introduced to the Christian faith properly, because I'd lived for many years, uh, well, several years at any rate, looking to be a Christian, trying to be a Christian, occasionally going to church and mixing with Christian folk, and then making a decision I wanted to live like a Christian, and then finding when I got to university and meeting real Christians that I wasn't at all. And I realized that a lot of this deception exists in the Christian church. Um, I'd lived among Christians for some time. I'd been to churches. I wasn't ever so familiar with uh, churches, but I had some familiarity with them. You, you didn't grow up in a Christian family? No, well, like a lot of people in the UK, my parents were kind of uh, churchgoers to an extent. And that was very common 50, 100 years ago. But they, uh, their marriage fell apart. And I think both of them... Um, uh, realized that they didn't have a faith that was able to cope with the uh, demands of life. And I think uh, the faith wasn't a part of our upbringing as a family, really. It, it was kind of in the background somewhere there, but um, never never in the foreground and never made any real impact on us, uh, except in a very general sense that we're in a country which acknowledges God and has some sort of Christian background. Now, you went to Cambridge University. Yeah. Was Was Christianity very uh, alive there at that time, or was it looked down upon? Well, it, it was a very um, big area of, of life for students in, in Cambridge at that time. I think it still is today. I think when I arrived there, um, I was thrown in. I, I made a decision. I wanted to investigate the Christian life and uh, find out what was involved in it and, uh, yeah, commit myself to it, I guess. Um, found that all sorts of things that were uh, happening there, but really good things very often. The, the Christian union there was... Uh, laying on some excellent speakers. There were vibrant churches. Um, it, there was a real ferment of ideas going on. And for me, it was fantastic because uh, within six months, I'd become a Christian there, a genuine Christian. And that's when I began to realize the sort of the, uh, the, the layers were peeled back from my eyes and I could see what was really going on in my life as well as uh, around me. And, uh, but there was also intense opposition to it. I, there was um, Billy Graham mission there uh, while I was there. And there was a, a group called SAMI, S-A-M-I, Students Against Mass Indoctrination, who picketed the buildings where Billy Graham was speaking and produced all sorts of leaflets and tracts to sort of discourage people from going to listen to Billy Graham. So it was very intense. You had uh, people in the uh, colleges at uh, Cambridge who would host, one of them was Don Cupid. You might have come across Don Cupid, but uh, uh, he was a theology lecturer, but notoriously liberal. And he would invite students back to his place after these Billy Graham meetings, and he would try and remove whatever Billy Graham had put, tried to put into their minds and hearts. It's um, fascinating, this battle that was going on. One of the assistant missioners went with these students and argued with Don Cupid, you know, and, and would take him on there and uh, try to prevent some of, the, uh, some of his ideas permeating the students. Uh, because in effect, he was trying to, he's like the birds that, uh, that when the seed is sown, they pluck it away almost immediately from the 
from the, uh, the path. He was like one of those birds that comes down and tries to take the word away. Um, so, yes, it was an intense spiritual atmosphere. And but from my point of view, really healthy and uh, really challenging. Um, gave me a great start. So I, uh, some great teaching there. And I got to tell you, man, Cambridge is a beautiful campus. I did some punting when I was, when I was there, which uh, if I understand, I think that's the right word yeah, yeah. for a boat ride, basically. Yeah. And that's what, it's a beautiful campus. Uh, there is this like river, if you will. Yeah, the River Cam. Yep. Yeah, that, that's just snaking its way through the campus. And then you can go on these boats and actually see behind behind the scenes in the campuses. But absolutely gorgeous. But it, it's one of those things where, you know, there there's, it's where you see that there's a lot more going on you that, that are behind kind of closed doors. Yeah. And, and I think that with what we're talking about, and particularly this concept of deception, that that there's more, you know, you can see this facade, but there's more going on, yeah. you know, b- behind the doors. And, and one of the things you bring up in the in the book that I think is interesting, and I wonder if you, and you just brought it up again, where you talk about in your own story that your eyes, you know, the, you could start to see, see again. And you talk in the book that Jesus, Jesus heals a lot of people's blindness. And you even see this with the Apostle Paul, that when he comes to faith, he, he's actually blinded. And then and then the scales fall off and he's able to see and, yeah. and begins to realize there's much more going on here. One of the things you kind of allude to in the book is that perhaps Jesus is healing people like that, you know, that that kind of healing happens, or at least that that healing is recorded often because there's more, there, there's kind of a metaphor going on. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. That that through Jesus, people are are their sight is being restored spiritually. Yeah, yeah. I think that happens in the Gospels, and it's a metaphor for what needs to happen to us spiritually. And you find that uh, after Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, then that metaphor that was Jesus was performing is kind of becomes real in people like Paul's Paul's life um, and Peter's as well. When when Peter preaches at Pentecost, there's a whole new man there seeing things he never saw before. Right. Uh, the Holy Spirit has peeled back his eyes, as it were, as well. And so uh, I think the apostles in, in general, that they exercise a ministry that clearly is taking on from Jesus. Um, uh, but they also are opening people's eyes, and they talk about that. Um, Paul talks about his role as being to open the eyes uh, when he speaks about, um, when he quotes Isaiah 49, you know, uh, uh, God has called him uh, to go to the Gentiles, a light to the Gentiles, to open their eyes. Um, yeah, so the, the, I think the, the book of Acts is an amazing story of how that's uh, that metaphor that Jesus performs physically is then worked out spiritually uh, as the church becomes alive and people have their, uh, their their eyes open to spiritual reality. So let's let's develop that a little bit more because you you know you've co- you come to faith and you start to realize that there's a bigger world you know there's there's more going on in the world than than you were originally aware of. You would then eventually head into ministry, and and, and I guess maybe I'm what I'm trying to get to is you know. When did you really start to realize that this this issue of deception and how and ultimately what gave birth to this book? Ultimately, what inspired you to yeah, write the book? Yeah. Well, I think it was there from the beginning of my conversion. I was so intensely aware that I had been duped myself. I'd, I'd uh, had a veneer of Christianity presented to me, and it was it, it was not real at all. And so, from the very beginning, I had this sense that there was a a veil, as Paul says too about the about the Jews, there's a veil over their heads, and it'd been over my head. And I realised that I had uh, thought I was a Christian, and I wasn't, and that stayed with me for a long time. And but the, 
as I lived on the Christian life, I, I came across all sorts of uh, teachings. I mean, you mentioned Cambridge University there. There was a, a great deal going on there spiritually, not only that was good, but also some things that were, were kind of offbeat. Um, and you mentioned weird at the beginning. <laughs> I was introduced to some of those. And uh, some of my, uh, one or two of my close friends who uh, helped me to faith were people who, uh, who took off in different directions uh, spiritually and uh, really made me question a lot of things. And uh, I, I suppose a lot of it is to do with the, the charismatic phenomenon at the time. It was very strong in the 1970s, but that could produce all sorts of um, weird and wonderful things. And some of them were actually, uh, I mean, I, I was given prophecies by people um, relating to my life. And uh, you know, I, as a young Christian, you can get very confused by all these things that are happening around you. Um, and I had to sort out a lot of things and I need to, I was very blessed to have some good teachers uh, at my home church who helped put me straight on some things. Um, so, it, and everywhere I think I've, I've lived and worked, uh, either in teaching profession or as a pastor, I've come across um, people who take hold of wrong doctrines. I think Satan just loves to get people hooked up on a particular wrong doctrine and, and our minds work in such a way that we often love to pursue these, these uh, avenues and, uh, and develop our own ideas. So it's been in there for a long time, but then about three or four years ago, I was just watching a guy uh, in a truck or in a car, uh, just watching someone, I think it might be an older person, and it just suddenly occurred to me just the illusion of power that we have, that technology, uh, a simple thing like a vehicle, we get into it and we think we're kings of the road. Um, and I was thinking, that why, how easily human beings live in, a, in our own fake world, basically. We we make up a world where we think we're in charge. We think we're in control. Like this person just driving a car. I don't know why this particular person might have been an older guy. I can't remember. You know, I was thinking, well, you put it on many years to go yet. And yet put it in the back of a, put them behind a, a, a driving, uh, uh, behind a wheel, in a car. And uh, we think we're, we're, we're lords of the road. And I, I began to think about that a little bit and uh, just thought about the different ways in which human beings um, deceive ourselves, really, about uh, how we live non-Christians as well as Christians. Um, and then I thought I, I would just uh, look at the Scriptures and see how there is a, I think it struck me very strongly at the same time that there was this pattern in Scripture. You've got the, the, in Genesis, you've got two chapters of a pristine world, and then the fall comes with, with, a, with a lie. And at the end of the Bible, you've got two chapters at the end in Revelation of a brand new world, a new creation. But it, just before that also, there is the one great last throw of the dice, I call it, uh, when Satan uh, comes out to deceive the four corners of the world. And I thought, yes, the human history almost began with a lie, and it ends with a lie. And then I thought there's a lot of things connecting in between as well, lots of uh, ways in which this theme reappears and uh, uh, how Christ changes the whole direction of the game as well. So, so it all began with this guy driving a car. <laughs> well, it's interesting um, along those lines, you know, there's a chapter writ that you, uh, the title evidence from the secular world that that this is something that people of all stripes experience mm. and and we have phrases to describe it uh this idea of deception and and I, I i love this so here are just some of them you know uh people are not what they seem appearances can be deceiving don't judge a book by its cover all that glitters is not gold uh he she flatters to deceive you know that this idea of deception is something that we are well aware of when it comes to you know our relationships with one another that we we're constantly on guard right trying to trying to see is is there something more going on here and you know am i encountering truth 
uh, where we we begin to realize, particularly from the Christian perspective, that this goes much deeper than just people, that that there's more going on to the world. You know, I think it's interesting, Lee, the moment that we currently find ourselves in, at least as I'm as we're recording this podcast, there is this war happening in uh, Ukraine with Russia. And one of the things I find f- interesting, you studied history uh, as as well. But when you look at history, you see that, you know, these acts of war that are committed are never done uh, with evil intentions, or at least that they're never described in evil intentions. Mm. They're always wrapped in a lie. Mm. They're always wrapped in deception. And you see this even with Putin, with we're going there to to save the Ukrainians, right? That in even recently, you know, he'll quote scripture about what he's doing and Again, kind of wrapping uh, his his actions in good intentions, and historically, I see this over and and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think the world understands in a strange sort of way that we are a fake world. That uh, uh, truth is the first casualty of war. Um, it always has been. People that, is a, that is a great uh, line there. Yeah, people are surprised about this. You know, uh, they're watching this war in Ukraine as if it's never happened before, uh, um, and they're saying, "Well, Putin's lying." Well, um, go back seventy years, and Hitler and Goering were doing it actually even more so than than uh, than you hear today. Um, so we are aware of that. We, we watch our uh, commercials on TV, and, and I think we, we we know all the time that we're having the wool pulled over our eyes that these guys are not completely genuine. Uh, with that smile on their face and the slick look, and you know, and what they are marketing to us, we, we know it's a con in some way, and yet we we buy into it, uh, and we kind of think, yeah, well, I, I understand that, I can see behind that, and but actually, we we don't see the ultimate reality. Uh, I mentioned some of the books on post truth at the beginning of what I've written there, and some of these guys in the secular world who are saying, yes, there's a a lot of deceit around, a lot of fake news, and. We need to get at the truth. And the, the BBC, I, I mentioned also, has had this campaign to try and uh, um, uh, reveal the true facts behind what's going on. Um, but people don't seem to, or the secular world doesn't seem to probe any beyond any far, further beyond that. They want to, I think they believe that ultimately we are masters of truth, that if we look hard enough, we'll find it. And I think one of the things that the Bible shows us is that, no, we can't. We, we need help from outside, um, that we are deceived ultimately, even if we think we find the truth about something to do with the war with Ukraine, then, um, then actually we, 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 we're deceiving ourselves. We think that's the ultimate truth. We're just putting ourselves into the category of those who are right and those who are wrong are deceived. Um, Isn't it interesting along these lines that as Jesus comes, the, the, the war he's waging that a lot of people miss and you bring up in the book is truth, mm. that he is, he is truth. And he's not compromising truth, and ultimately it costs him his life. You know, he's he's fighting deception at, at the at, in in his uh, in his ministry, and Satan is constantly seeking to subvert that. And and even you know, I, I find it fascinating that you have the Old Testament beginning with the temptation, and you have the New Testament beginning with the temptation. Adam and Eve you know, they, they fall to that temptation. And I think it's also interesting that you have Adam and Eve are being tempted in the, in the best of circumstances. Jesus is being yeah. tempted in the worst of circumstances, but he remains faithful to the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's not only faithful to the truth, but actually he's faithful. 
uh, you're talking about circumstances there, the whole of the, uh, the world is against him. Uh, even the disciples do not see who he is. Uh, and so he's fighting against Satan. He's fighting against the world, uh, the, the Jewish leaders, even at times against his own disciples, because they will not, they cannot see who he is. Even at the end, they all desert him on the cross. And it's such a lonely trail that he blazed. Um, he, he not only spoke the truth, but he said, I am the truth. Um, Which climaxes, right, with, yeah. with Pilate as, yeah. as he's on trial. And isn't that interesting? What, what comes out in the trial? This concept of truth. What, mm. what is the truth? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and such a lonely existence and so frustrating for him. Um, because until the Father in heaven opened the eyes of people uh, to who he was, you know, it, it, his mission was, uh, he, he must have felt at times he was bashing his head against a brick wall because uh, people would not see who he was and uh, were determined to destroy him if they could. Um, it, like you said, in a way that Adam and Eve never experienced that sort of opposition. Um, they had it easy in some respects, but they still failed. What about your time in ministry, Lee? Tell, tell me about... Um, I know you, you've taught for a number of years, but how long have you pastored and how have you encountered how this sort of thing in deception is still used today where, you know, pastoring is not easy? Yeah. Um, I've been 20 years now in, in uh, pastoring. I was 20 years in school teaching before that. Um, uh, I, I guess that uh, uh, there's so many different things. I, could, I mean, you, you find all sorts of uh, different battles you have to face, uh, often personal ones as well. Uh, there are times when you've got to recognize that, uh, you know, that you yourself have actually been following a, a, a blind alley. Um, and, it requires and, some humility yeah, to admit your own yeah, mistakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I, I, I guess one of the things I find most frustrating, certainly in, in the UK, we have quite small churches compared to some of yours over in Canada. But, but even with small churches, you find there are people uh, who, like, like as I was, I suppose, who are, are following Christianity, uh, believing that they are um, doing the right thing. Uh, reading the Bibles, um, praying, but I've never had an experience of, of rebirth. I've, I've still yet to see Jesus Christ as the the, the only true sin bearer, uh, as the one who actually becomes for them wisdom from God, um, and are still in some way trying to pursue their own righteousness uh, and believe in their own wisdom, their own ability to work things out for themselves. And uh, when those people come to uh, into a church, I think one of the hardest struggles is to, you've got to love them uh, and and preach the word to them and pray for them. And even after many years, they still may not have come to a genuine faith. And you talk to them and you realize that that veil is still over their eyes. Um, and that's when I, I think about Christ and his experiences. And uh, you realize that actually it's not in your hands, you know, that we can, we can preach, we can pray for people, we can um, uh, encourage them in all different ways. But in the end, it has to be a sovereign work of God's grace and mercy uh, for them to come to, to genuine faith. And he's got to lift the veil from their eyes. Um, so I, I think one of the things I've learned is ne never to, uh, well, to celebrate every true rebirth, every true person who comes to faith in Christ who is genuinely reborn. Uh, and you have to look for those signs, I suppose, really, that they are reborn, that you want to see evidence. Because uh, I think that the Bible gives us this, you know, in the examples in Acts and elsewhere, when people come to faith, there is evidence of a new birth. Um, and I think wisdom, discernment says you need to look for that and not be fobbed off by anything that's lesser. People can pull the wool over your eyes very easily and convince you they become come to faith, but actually there'll be signs there if you look for them. Uh, and we need to pray for genuine conversions um, and not be, uh, not, not be taken in by easy, uh, light conversions that actually are not genuine in the end at all. But that isn't the fruit that God's looking for. 
uh, on that note, you know, it's interesting in the realm of theological anthropology, uh, you know, a theology of, of what it means to be human. And, and as we look at ourselves, uh, a phrase that I often think about is, is that there's this balance between not thinking too highly of ourselves and not thinking too lowly of ourselves, you know, that, that we're balancing these. But it seems to me that there's a similar balance that happens with when we talk about these concepts of like spiritual, uh, the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare and those sorts of things where, you know, you can think too highly of Satan or demons or think too lowly, or maybe put it another way, think too highly of the spiritual realm or think too lowly of the spiritual realm, that there's this, there's this constant balancing act where you can see people either ignoring it completely or becoming completely fixated in it. And, and how do you see walking that, that, you know, that balancing act, particularly as a pastor, as you're, you're guiding people? Uh, Does that, does that question make sense? Um, you mean in terms of like keeping them on their, keeping their feet on the ground while at the same time encouraging them to live a, uh, a spiritual life? Um, and and but, for myself as well. But not seeing like uh, a demon behind every bush sort yeah, of idea. Yeah, Does yeah. that mean? You know, yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I think the more that they read scripture and have scripture properly explained to them, because I think that same balance is there in scripture. Uh, I think there's a, you know, you, you read through the, the Old Testament. There's a, I've been reading the stories of the patriarchs recently and, there's such, you know, when Jacob at the end of his life says, oh, my years have been difficult and few, 147, well, that's like 130 years, you know, he said to Pharaoh, you know, and I think uh, here is uh, one of the great, uh, well, a hero, he's not really a hero, is he? But uh, one of the great figures of the Old Testament, and he just says, my life's so ordinary, and it's been so painful and difficult. And yet he is the great covenant bearer, Jacob, the one who gives his name to Israel. Um, and I think you find the same with Paul and the New Testaments as well. Some of the, when he talks about his ordinariness of his life, and the, well, it's ordinary. When he talks about his shipwrecks and his beatings and his stonings, um, the way he's had to go without uh, so often in his life, you know, and uh, there is a, a real humility there. And of course, there's the occasion when he talks about his thorn in the flesh. Yeah. Um, you can't he, help he, but feel like there's a bit of identity crisis at times as you're reading Paul. Yeah. Yeah. But he says there, he says to keep me from being conceited. Uh, and I think that's the very idea is that, you know, I, so I don't have a false idea about myself. I don't become deceived about who I am. Um, but, it, but he has this identity crisis, doesn't he, also in, uh, uh, elsewhere. He talks about Galatians when he says, you know, I, I wanted to check with the apostles in Jerusalem. That I hadn't run my race in vain. I hadn't, you know, got on, off, the wrong, uh, off on the wrong foot. Um, so I think you find this, uh, you know, if you read the Bible and think about the people there and what actually happens in the Scripture, uh, the Lord is telling us some of the great heroes, you know, people like Elijah, uh, they, were, they had big falls as well and, and understood their humanity. Um, and at times, you know, realized they were failures. When, when uh, Elijah went to Horeb, he was a, a wasted guy. He, he, he finished, he, he end of his tether. Uh, and God had to pick him up again and bring him back. Um, and he was the guy who is seen, you know, he, there is the Mount of Transfiguration talking with Jesus, with Moses. Uh, so... That's, I think that's the balance that we see in Scripture. And the more that we uh, teach people that and show people that, I think it's going to be uh, helpful for them to sort of uh, model themselves on that and realize that you don't get carried away in a cloud when you're a Christian. Or if you do, you come back to earth pretty quickly. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You, know, when you bring up in Second uh, Corinthians 11, verse 14, where Paul talks about Satan masquerades. Mm. And it, it's interesting because... You brought up a number of different, you know, stories through the Bible where 
where the enemy will masquerade in different ways and different challenges that people have experienced and to this day still experience. Uh, it, there's this one uh, Jesus movie that I, I love. I think it's called Jesus, the Greatest Story Ever Told. And in it, uh, they have this scene where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness and and Satan comes to Jesus in various forms. At one point, kind of dressed like a lawyer and another point as a beautiful, seductive woman. And and I think what they're ultimately trying to get at is this idea of masquerading that, mm. that can put on a, a, a different guise and and kind of hide the yeah. the uh, intentions in, in various ways. And one of the things that I just find interesting in the day and age that you and I live in is the, the different ways in which Satan masquerades and can tempt us to put our our trust in people instead of in in God. And I think that can happen in different ways, whether or not it's putting it's the temptation to trust ourselves or it's the temptation to trust somebody else. I mean, we have often these moments where we're tempted to, you know, put our trust in our favorite author, our favorite pastor, you know, we'll often refer to as kind of a celebrity culture where the, the, these people really become the truth of our faith. And then when those people fail us, we we're left with this idea that Christianity has failed us or that Jesus has failed. Do you, do you, yeah, I think it's yeah. an interesting deception that we're currently that a lot of Christians are currently living in. Yes, yeah, uh, I think that's right. Um, uh, and you have leaders uh, over in the US uh, calendar as well as in the UK who have uh, uh, who have failed badly, and uh, people some people's faith has been very harmed by that, very damaged by that. I think another thing I notice is that um, sentiment um, is becoming very important. Um, how we feel, and and there's a kind of sense I, I have that. Satan's almost massaging our um, our souls in the way that he presents things to us. So you take the war in Ukraine at the moment; the whole world, it seems, is has got a sentimental attachment to the Ukraine. Now, I'm not saying that <laughs> there's some justice in that. I'm sure the Ukrainians—they're uh, a country, a nation that's been uh, invaded—and uh, it's right to have sympathy with them. But you find, you know, that pop stars and uh, political leaders, um, all sorts of celebrities. Uh, uh, wearing yellow and blue, and um, people's houses have yellow and blue outside them, and I, I sort of think, well, yes, it's a sort of sense in which people are are being uh, um, uh, convinced uh, their whole feelings, their whole sentiment is being attached to one particular cause. Now, that that can be a good cause, but it it could equally well in the future be a a, a bad cause, and we wouldn't know it necessarily uh, because we are we're so easily taken in. Uh, and I I think uh, with um, the amount of the ways in which we can uh, or Satan can uh, uh, approach us. Things like music, for instance. Uh, uh, people who walk around uh, often all day with their earpieces in and listening to music, and I think uh, we're, we're very easily seduced by these sort of things. And uh, when you get the combination of, of them all happening at the same time, this sort of uh, sense in which we're surrounded by um, surrounded by these experiences um, and the radio and the TV and internet, everything we read and hear, uh, are, are, are pushing us in a certain direction. I kind of sense there's a sort of massaging of our souls going on. And the, I, I mentioned in the book that at the end of history, there will be this final lie. Paul just calls it the lie. Uh, uh, um, doesn't give a particular characterization. Uh, but in some sense, Satan is going to be able to master our souls. And I think unless we are, well, I'm sure, unless we are Christians who are born again and have a, a center of gravity outside of this world, 
uh, that we're going to be eating meat for Satan, that he will in some way be able to manipulate our minds, our hearts and souls, and move in a direction where we attach ourselves to maybe a, a cause, maybe a political leader. Um, I, I mentioned in the book a, a, a person. Um, and um, Well, even, even a political uh, ideology. Yeah, you, can, yeah. you can see how often people will put hope in the, a country or, yeah. or a political system or whatever it might be. Where we have to keep asking ourselves, you know, is that is that the truth? Is that is yeah. that where my hope actually lies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you see, I think seen in the U.S. and also in the U.K., sometimes uh, issues become bipolar, polarized. So you have, you know, you're either for Trump or against Trump. You're either for the EU or you're against the EU, and there's no middle ground. Uh, and uh, in both of those situations, I think it was interesting just how strongly sentiment played a part. I. Uh, whether you agree with it or not, I think in the UK, the, it was sentiment that drove a lot of people to vote to, to leave Europe. Um, the arguments may or may not have been good on, on, on one side or the other, but it, it was a sense in which people just felt uh, they wanted to, to do this, um, either to leave or to stay. Um, and uh, people were trying to argue their, their point of view, but it wasn't getting through. Uh, the, the, it was people's, uh, deep down, their, their sense of uh, identity. Um, just their, their sense of what was right and wrong, maybe. Um, people did couch it in those terms. You know, it was, uh, I, I received literature from a, um, some, you might, yeah, we, we pretty call them weird, uh, Christian um, uh, uh, origins. And uh, they were saying that this is basically to sort of stay in the EU was to, you know, to be in league with the devil. Um, and uh, you know, there are people who would believe that narrative. And, I, you know, someone in our church who would. Yeah. It's interesting we often think that propaganda is a new thing. Uh, the Bible tells us that it's a very old thing and that ultimately that we've been living in a, in a propaganda world for a very long time, a world of deception where we, we have to work hard to see the truth and we have to be willing to, um, you know, A, that we, we need to have our focus on, on Christ. We need to be re, reborn as children of God as we are. Um, uh, children of the King, as we're following after Him and and seeing things through through His eyes, the way yeah. the way He sees things, but but it's not easy, right? It's it, it's a constant challenge. It's a it's a daily challenge. I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus says, "Take up your cross and follow yeah. Me." And Paul picks up on this in Philippians chapter two, when he when he in, you know encourages the church to crucify their their selfish ambition and their vain conceit. In other words, you know, it might, you know, picking up your cross might not actually require your physical death, but it will definitely require you dying to your yourself yeah. daily. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There is a gift of the, the gift of the spirit. Uh, I, I mean, it's a crucial turning point, isn't there, in the Bible when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And um, many things come from that. There, there's the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, um, patience, kindness, and, and, and the like. But there's also this gift of wisdom. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I think this is the key thing I wanted to say in the book, really, which is that wisdom is now available. And James says, if any of you lack wisdom, you can ask for it. But as you're saying, no, and I like also... how, by the way, in Colossians chapter two, Paul says that all wisdom is ultimately the, is found in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we, uh, uh, like the apostles, the apostles can see things. Uh, Peter and Paul, both of them see straight through. Uh, some of the guys that come against them, Simon the sorcerer, um, Ananias and Sapphira. And immediately there's a, there's a wisdom there that wasn't there before, a discernment of spirits. But 
uh, it doesn't uh, come like a drop of a hat. We have to work at it, and, and we need to be disciples who are uh, following Christ and, uh, and as you say, not living uh, world's patterns, not living according to the world's patterns, but uh, uh, allowing Christ to change us and then asking for that gift of wisdom uh, that wasn't available to the Old Testament saints um, in the same way that it is available to us. Um, we can take hold of that, and we don't have to be deceived. And uh, I, I'm, what I wrote, I was very struck by the way in the New Testament, almost every letter says, Worse the effect, do not be deceived. Do not allow yourselves to be led astray. Uh, do not uh, be taken in. Um, because that is an instruction, it's an imperative in the New Testament. Um, and we need to take hold of that, but it does take work. It takes study, it takes prayer. Uh, and it, as, you're, as you're talking, Lee, what, what, what the, the image that is in my mind is kind of the image of a map where, where you can see the straight line from A to B right? And, and the straight line is Jesus. Like, he gets it. He gets it right. But you and I are more like a squiggly line, right? Yeah. We require course correction. There are times in our lives that we will start to stray, right? And, and through the work of the Spirit and, and through wisdom, as you're talking about, we, we realize, okay, we're not quite right there. And we, we make this course correction and we're, we're constantly, you know, we're, it, it, it's, it's a constant working its way out of that wisdom being applied as we're seeking truth. Do, would you agree? Yeah, you, yes, uh, yes. And, and being in Christ, uh, it's so important, isn't it? We have that communion. With, I'm reading a, a moment, um, Kevin de Jong, on the holding the holiness, I think I mentioned to you earlier. And uh, um, he, he talks at the end there about the importance of union and communion, um, that we are, yes, we are made one with Christ, but we've got to work at the communion side of things. The union is something that Christ has established, but the communion, that regular uh, walking with Christ, um, listening to Him, praying to Him, because um, we can err, we can wander away, and we can. Uh, he says in his book there, we can be in union, but not in communion. Yeah, it reminds uh, me of Jesus' sermon on the Mount, where he encourages his disciples to hunger and thirst after mm, righteousness. Yeah. Uh, this is something I speak a lot to these days with my with my college students and, and different people that I'm, you know, able to to encourage. Because I'm like, listen, I think sometimes we get caught up in the wisdom of the age that says, hey, success is in having a best-selling book or being the most popular podcast preacher, you, you name it. And here Jesus is saying, hey, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Th th yes. Th this, is, this is success. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, the, the wisdom of the age is um, it, it, it's, uh, very, uh, um, very powerful. Um, it's all pervasive as well. And, and I, I find in the UK and probably over here as well, because I think the, the size of the churches you have, it's going to happen, um, but it's going to pervade the church. And it's so important to guard against that. Uh, I don't know what measures necessarily over here you have for that, but uh, every church needs to recognize that Satan wants to derail it uh, and take it away from the truth. Have you had your own moments of doubt, frustration as a pastor, as a Christian, where you you know, your own identity crisis? How, how have you dealt with those? Or, you know, what, what does that look like for you? I, I think my, my conversion was so powerful uh, for me. Um, and there were so many, um, I say, signs attending to it. I mean, uh, there were so many ways in which my life changed uh, that couldn't have happened by my, my, me changing it. That I, I've never doubted the fact that, uh, that, that there was a sovereign work of grace in me. Um, uh, there have been times when I've felt very frustrated because I realized that how how slowly uh, I am being sanctified. Um, and at times I look back, I've been reading a book recently and I was thinking, wow, 
in 40 years, have I really changed a great deal in this area? Maybe I haven't. Maybe my character is much the same now as it was 40 years ago when I became a Christian. And uh, that makes me a little bit grieved at times. Maybe I'm wrong about that. So I think uh, sometimes you can be too self-analytical. You've got to trust that God is changing you, even if you uh, perhaps uh, look at your life sometimes and see that it hasn't changed as much as you think it should have done. uh, and other people, and when you're married as well, you've got a family, uh, I said in my introduction, uh, they often are the ones who throw most light on you and uh, you, you see yourself in relief there and you think, oh my goodness, have I, uh, have I fallen short there again? And uh, So I, I think there's lots of areas where I've, I felt challenged in my sanctification over this 40 years. I've never felt any doubt at all about um, my identity as a Christian. Um, but I, I think I realise now far, you know, how much work God has to do in each believer, because the image, uh, when we become Christians, whether it's when we're very young or later in life, there's so much there that God has to work with to change. And he's got us to show you what that is. And he, if he showed me all at one, one go, I, I'd just been overwhelmed by it, I think. But um, uh, now I'm looking back, I can see, wow, there's an awful lot he has done, but there's so much more he has to do as well. It's interesting for me, this is something I've, I've shared before, but the, over these, particularly these last couple of years, God's just really impressed it on my heart. I know this might sound like a weird thing, but that I'm not Jesus. I, I, I think this can be one of the greatest temptations or deceptions, actually, for Christians is to actually start to think that you, yeah. that you are Jesus, or, or at least to realize how great he is. Yes. And when you start to realize how great he is, you realize that you're not him, yeah. but you then begin to realize you want to be like him. It's like, it's, it's at that point, you really start the discipleship process of becoming a student of Jesus saying, hey, I'm... I fully realize I'm not you, but I, I want to learn from you to be like you. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And it's a, it, one of the deceptions that came for preachers is that they can get removed from that reality and uh, uh, think that they are in some way, especially anointed and that God has set them apart, which he has done in one sense. But uh, when you think that you're halfway to heaven and the others are still on, on, on ground level, um, uh, then yeah, you can get, and this is what's happened with some of the leaders, didn't they? You know, the, uh, I, I didn't know Ravi Zacharias, and I don't know some of the others at all, but uh, you hear about them and you sort of think, well, somewhere they got detached from reality and some way they began to think that they could do things uh, and live in a way that um, uh, was different from anyone else and God wouldn't hold them to account. You, you know, it's interesting. You even see this with the Apostle Paul where he he doesn't fall into that, but he he shares the temptation where yeah. where he, he shares, listen, if you're not careful, mm. you might think that the work of God being done through you is you. You know, you you can confuse that, that you could be deceived in thinking that that these people, these changed lives is because of you. And, and it's not because of you. It's the power of God mm. in you. And and you so you can see that even even Paul is and, and you can see this in the Bible where people are being you can be tempted. You can be deceived uh, by that. Mm. Yeah. And, and mm. even Jesus talks about, uh, again, going back to his sermon uh, in Matthew, particularly in, in chapter seven of the Sermon on the Mount, where. He says, listen, there are going to be people who think that they were following or doing things in my, you know, for me. Yeah. But yeah. but they deceived themselves. Yeah, that's, that's frightening, isn't it? When you read that and you realize uh, they were doing things that most people would say, well, only a, only a super apostle, only a super spiritual person could do those things. And yet Jesus says, I don't know them. I don't know them. Um, no, it's, 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 it's very, um, uh, I mean, Apostle Peter as well, you know, in Galatians, Paul speaks to Peter and Peter's been deceived. Here is this apostle who had this amazing revelation given to him, who preached in, in the book of Acts and saw thousands come to faith, who, who had that experience of meeting Cornelius, 
and in Galatians chapter two, he's separating from Gentiles, um, and he has been deceived by his uh, his fellow Jewish Christians who convinced him that it was right, it's the right thing to do. Um, so right to the end of our uh, our years, and uh, um, this temptation can come to us, and we can uh, we can be taken in by it. And uh, I think all these examples are, are so um, so helpful in Scripture. Yeah, and it's um, one of the things I love about Scripture is that they're in there. Mm. It could have been very easy to leave those out. I mean, you could imagine the temptation of Peter maybe talking to Luke or whoever and be like, you don't have to include that part, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, it doesn't look good yeah, yeah. Uh, on me yeah. or whatever. But uh, that's something you, I really appreciate about the Bible. Some people are are deceived by that, actually. They see these broken people and, and think to themselves, well, what kind of Christianity is this? Yeah. But, well, it's because they aren't the Christianity. It's Jesus is the yeah. one that's pointing to, but people are broken. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and, and some, of course, fall away as Judas, uh, who spent three years with Jesus, listening to his ministry, was one of those 12, was ministering, was sent out and performing miracles, um, and yet at the end betrayed him. Um, and people like Demas and others who fell away um, and went after the world and loved the world. Um, so, yes, it's a, it, it, it's a tricky road. But as you're saying, throughout the, the whole Bible, the hero is never us. This is it. Humanity is the object of God's affection, but we're not the hero. Uh, Jesus Christ is the hero, and uh, uh, the Bible keeps that uh, firmly, uh, clearly in view. Amen. I, I want to, as we as we end here, and maybe this is a weird turn. I don't, I don't know, but i I want to I, I want to ask you a question uh, as as we as we come to a close. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about Satan, but I, I want to just take a moment to talk about to talk about Satan. What does the Bible tell us about Satan? And what what are your thoughts about this great deceiver? What what motivates Satan? Mm. Uh, well, yeah, it's a that's a big question. Um, I, I think the Bible is deliberately obscure about it about him. I don't think it, well, you know, we we're, we're asked to sort of uh, investigate him too much. Um, but he is the enemy of our souls. Uh, I, I understand him to be an angel. Uh, a very powerful angel who's led other angels uh, into rebellion against God, and uh, th- those demons, uh, as they're called, uh, are now um, uh, around us. They're, they're av- they, know that they they want to corrupt us. I think Satan is someone who is hell bent on doing as much damage as he can. He's got his time is short, the Bible says, and I think he his only pleasure comes from destroying what God has made, uh, what God has done, which is good, um, and anything he can wreck. He's going to go down to hell himself. He's going to be destroyed. Um, and he wants to drag as many people down with him as he can. Um, and uh, you know, our, our job is to, is to wage war against him, uh, to recognize he, him as the enemy, uh, but to recognize that God has given us every means we need at our disposal. A little bit like the Ukrainians at the moment. You know, the, the West is arming them up to the hilt, isn't it? And, uh, you know, this, it's almost like they're saying to the Ukraine, look, you may be a small little figure here next to a... Uh, big Uncle Joe in Russia, uh, but we'll arm you. We'll help you. Uh, we'll 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 give you what you re- what's required to uh, to hold back, um, defend yourselves against the Russians. Now, I'm not sure if they're going to do that or not, but it's almost as if Christ is saying the same to us. I, everything at my disposal, he says, I'm going to give to you all the weapons you need. Uh, we see that in Ephesians six, and you can resist this guy. You don't know a lot about him, perhaps, but you know enough to know that he is uh, he is a, a dreadful enemy. Uh, but also you've got, um, through me, you've got everything available you need to counter him and to take your stand. And uh, as Paul says, when you've done everything to stand, 
um, he will not overthrow you. You can resist him, um, and uh, in the end, he'll have to turn away from you uh, because you stand on Christ, and what Christ did at the cross is, uh, is so powerful uh, that Satan has no, no way of overthrowing that, and you can stand on that ground and never be overthrown. Amen. You know, it's interesting position as a father, as a, as a husband, as a, as a pastor, that as, as we are in the midst of this battle, and one of the illustrations Jesus uses is that we're building, we're building our lives on a foundation. He, he calls us to build our lives on, on him. And one of the things that's always struck me and challenged me as, a, uh, as not only as a Christian, not only as a husband and a father, but as a pastor, is, is you know, it, it's not just us that, that are, is, I'm, I'm not the only one in this battle. My kids are in this battle. My wife is in mm. this battle. The, the people in my church are, are in this battle. And wanting, you know, to, to make sure that, that they are um, building on the, on the rock, uh, you know, that they are arming themselves with the, the right weapons, if you will, for this battle that, that there is, and that's part of the, that's one of the things that's challenging as being a, a dad, as, as being a pastor, is knowing that there's only so much I can do and that they're in this, this battle. I can point them to Jesus and say, this, this, this is the rock. This is, this is what will lead to your success. You know, but at, at the end of the day, the, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, part of the ch- it's part of the challenge, isn't it? That there's only so much that, that you can do in yeah. trusting yeah. that they will yeah. walk with the Lord. Yes, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I often wonder about the... Uh, uh, th- that infant church, you know, when people like Paul saw uh, when he was on his own uh, facing trial, he must have thought, well, this is it. Maybe this is what we're going to all kind of come to an end here. And everything I've done is going to be uh, just uh, uh, wiped out. Um, uh, the-, the Jews will have their way and uh, the-, the-, the Christian church will be snuffed out. But here we are 2,000 years on. And-, uh, and I think Paul had that confidence and others have as well over history that, yes, e- even if we perish, Christ is still alive. You, know, you, you see it through history as well, when, when you see countries that have gone through dead periods and then suddenly, somehow, uh, a, a witness has revived there. Uh, recently in our church in um, Devon, we, we appointed a, a young man from Albania uh, as um, assistant pastor. And uh, uh, he'd been living in a country that was communist under Enver Hoxha for many decades. And uh, Christianity was wiped out there. Uh, and then suddenly in 1989, 1990, around that time, 91 I think it was actually, um, uh, the communism fell in Eastern Europe, and uh, missionaries arrived there. And this young man, an eight-year-old boy, was converted. Um, and and uh, there is now a burgeoning church there, um, as there is now elsewhere in Eastern Europe, as there is in the Ukraine at the moment. And and Jesus Christ can bring to life that which is dead. That's the great thing for you and for I. We were dead in our sins. We were made alive. And the same is true for the church. That it, it may be uh, is an occasion in Revelation when the church, uh, uh, the two witnesses are, are both. Uh, destroyed, killed by Satan, and the world gloats. And then suddenly it says they spring up again and began to speak uh, because God does not allow his church to be destroyed. He, he will breathe life into dead souls um, and, uh, uh, and, and his work will never be. So uh, there's a great confidence we have like that. But at times you look at it humanly speaking, and you sort of think, well, I can't see there's any hope for the church in this country or in my town or maybe my own congregation. You know, maybe you're preaching to dead or, souls. Or my own child. Yeah. yeah? Absolutely, yes. I mean, the number of parents, uh, I'm sure you've met them as well. I've met someone who, whose children have wandered off and from the faith, and uh, um, I, I know some at the moment, you know, praying for them uh, as parents and, and for their children. And you sort of think, well, how can, how can we change that direction? How can those children come back to faith? 
um, uh, but there is a sovereign God who can do this. And, uh, you know, I think in my own family life, my, my own parents, they were not born again Christians, and there were five children. None of us were Christians. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, uh, three of us became Christians in one year, 1979. And uh, uh, it was almost like God sent that light into our, we had a very dark family, a very difficult family, lots of pain, uh, um, difficult circumstances with the divorce of our parents particularly. Uh, but God sent light. And uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, isn't it, uh, Paul talks about uh, an act of creation when God sends light into darkness, into our hearts. And it's, uh, it's the same sort of power that was exerted in Genesis chapter 1. Um, let there be light. Uh, and there was light. And uh, the church will live on because of that, uh, because Christ will send his light uh, into this world. Amen. And in fact, the older I get, the more I realize that those are the true miracles in the Bible that we've missed wasn't wasn't the blind receiving sight that was an amazing miracle, but a heart receiving sight, a a, a heart and a mind renewed in Christ, the the dead come back to life um, as a as a hardened heart is is softened. These these are the miracles that we pray for. Those are the ones that we really you know plead to the Lord yeah. as, as we. You know, as, as we think about those that we love in our lives, you know, that God would, would, um, would, would clear that deception and that they would be able to see. Yeah. We recently had a, a, 60, a 61-year-old man came to faith from a very, very dark background. And uh, um, one of the questions that uh, he asked and others ask is, why does it take 61 years? Why, why couldn't it have happened 60 years ago? Uh, but there's so much um, that's passed under the bridge, so much water passed under the bridge. But all that water, all those things in that person's life, suddenly um, they are, are useful. Uh, this man can minister to others who had similar sort of difficult backgrounds to himself. And uh, we must never forget that um, in Christ's economy, you know, that even our, even our years spent in sin, he can use. So children who are rebelling now, that, that very rebelling itself may be something that uh, God can use in the future. Um, if we were all brought up in families where we became Christians before we were eight years old, we We'd all be very sweet and angelic, but uh, we wouldn't be able to reach those people who, who've had hardened, um, uh, sin-ridden lives. Um, so there's always a purpose behind what, uh, what Christ is doing and the timing of it as well. Just the right time, Christ came into the world, and uh, at just the right time, he comes to people to save them as well. Lee, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, on the AC Podcast. It has been great to have you. It's been my pleasure. It's been lovely to, uh, to chat with you and to share some of my experiences with your folk. Yeah, and I hope you write more books in the future. This book, Deception, The Craft of Satan, The Folly of Man, The Wisdom of God. It is an excellent book. You can actually pick this up uh, through Apologetics Canada. Hop onto the Apologetics Canada website, go to our store, and you can uh, get a copy of that. I hope that you uh, enjoy the the remainder of your trip here in Canada, and I look forward to us uh, speaking again soon. Yeah, thank you, Andy. It's been great to be here. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning into this week's episode. As always, we pray you're challenged and encouraged. If you have any questions about this week's episode or you'd like to learn a little bit more about Lee Emerson, feel free to reach out to us at info at apologeticscanada.com and we'll point you in the right direction. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, so make sure to like and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms and interact with us on social media. If you have any questions, recommendations, or comments, feel free to reach out to us at info at apologeticscanada.com, and we will get to you in kind. Until the next time, you know the drill. Love God, love people, and tune in next week when we find more things to think about. Bye for now.